Lord Jesus, in our time together already, we have sung of your grace, we have sung of your mercy, we've confessed our need for your mercy in the face of, of judgment that we deserve. But please now, by the power of your Spirit, open up not just our ears, but open up our hearts to, so that we would truly feel our need of mercy, our need for salvation and warm our hearts, amaze our hearts once more as we hear of how that mercy was displayed for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The cross is the symbol of Christianity. All over the world, all over the world, it is recognized as the symbol of the Christian faith. Yes, we see crosses in different places, jewelry, tattoos, or whatever, but you see a building, it's got a cross at the top, and you're thinking, that's probably a church, or it's linked in some way to, to one. Modern Britain today, with its variety of beliefs, modern Britain where people's knowledge of the Bible or, or kind of Bible stories is so kind of misunderstood. People see a cross on something and instinctively they know it's linked to Christianity. Why is that? Why is that? Many of us here, but not all of us, have kind of grown up maybe going to church and, you know, we, we're used to the cross Maybe you grew up making the sign of the cross over you as a way of, of blessing yourself. Maybe you were given a cross um, at, at a special time of your life. Maybe if you were baptized or confirmed, if you made a, a First Holy Communion, something like that. Someone gives you a cross and you know that it was something special because of that event. Have you ever asked why? Why a cross? The cross was a place of execution. The cross is a place of torture. The cross is a place, an instrument of the death penalty common in the Roman Empire, widely regarded by historians as one of the most painful, most agonizing methods of execution. It wasn't there just for the individual to feel that pain, but for people to look at what happened and thought, I better not do that. I better not be involved in anything that might lead me to that. It kept people in their place. It was horrible. So how can that symbol that represents the most shocking, grotesque form of execution, and how can the cross, in particular as we think as Christians, that represents the depiction of the death of Jesus, how can that become the most, one of the most recognized symbols in the whole world? It doesn't make sense. It actually just seems paradoxical. Why not the empty grave? 
Why not picture, I don't know, uh, a, a tomb, a stone rolled away? Why not pick that as the symbol of Christianity? Or a dove, associated with the Holy Spirit. Or the lion, the lion of Judah, or, or a lamb, one of those. But why the cross? Why is it that the cross has endured as that symbol of our faith? Cross, place of death, punishment, of execution. How can that be worth remembering, let alone celebrating? That's simply confusing. You start thinking, isn't it cruel? Consider then this verse, found maybe not at the kind of geographical center, but at the real heart of this passage, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Again, you've maybe grown up coming to church, or you've been coming to church for a number of years, and we take it for granted that these words, the words around them, this, this kind of section that was read out, we take it for granted that it's about Jesus. That this whole section is a prophecy about Jesus, about his death, about his bloody execution. It's there to talk about not just what was happening to him physically or emotionally, but spiritually too. The unseen reality behind this. Jesus' death on the cross, the turning point of history. Three big things we want to see from this. We see here, we were talking about a servant earlier talks about a servant, we see that this servant is disfigured and despised. We see this servant is, is a substitute, a sinless substitute. And yet we will see that this servant is victorious through his suffering. Firstly then, that this, this servant is described as being disfigured, disfigured and despised. Anyone been watching the tennis? Anyone watching Wimbledon? Yeah, a number of us have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when you think of power, a powerful athlete, powerful tennis player, who do you think of? I'm thinking of Nadal at the moment. He's just something else, isn't he? Um, his, his power, his athleticism, the way he moves across the court, the way he can, he can just do something that other players can't, and yet somehow seem to do it mostly with an air of, of calm, of powerful authority, makes his presence known, makes his presence felt. See that power in him, and it's something to be admired. We think of power, do we think of Jesus? You might say, well, you might think of a powerful Jesus as the, as the risen Jesus. Jesus of, of Easter Sunday, exalted the Jesus of, of, of Ascension Day, you know, now exalted, ruling in authority, raised, the lifted high, 
words that we use, common words in our songs. You know, someone with power who acts wisely, literally has been successful. That's how the passage actually starts um, that we looked at, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. Servant, power, victory, the two go together. But it's, it's not the story. It's not all the story. There's a reason why he is exalted, why he's lifted up. This is not, by and large, a, a kind of a uh, triumphal, triumphalist kind of part of the Bible. Because it's showing this servant in a way which makes us uncomfortable. It shows us this servant in distress. It says here that this, is, this was a man that many were appalled at, disfigured beyond that of anyone. Someone who's almost dehumanized. Not quite a man. Not like a great athlete that you say, well, I want to see them. I can't wait to get front row tickets to see them. No, no, no. We want to be away from this person. This is a Jesus here that makes us recoil, that shocks us, that provokes a reaction in us, that makes us silent. It's described here as a Jesus who, because of what happens, it just makes us shut our mouths when we're confronted by this. The truth is that we can't see the power or understand the power of the mighty, exalted Jesus until we understand the disfigured Jesus. Jesus confounds our expectations of what power looks like. We expect power to be visible, audible, real presence, vigor, Dominance, you know, kind of a mighty warrior who's going to be at the front leading the battle. You know, someone, if it's not an age thing, someone who's articulate, articulate, you know, they're able to kind of stir people together in a call to arms. But this passage tells us that to the human eye, Jesus was unimpressive. You just walked past him. He was a man, as a born in a stable amongst animals. Where did he grow, grow up? In a backwater town in Palestine. Talked about as, as a tender shoot growing up. He was ordinary. At least, he looked ordinary. Um, my family from Mauritius, my dad, told, my dad, who had a kind of Catholic background, he told me that as a child growing up, he was kind of told that Jesus was the perfect man. You all understand that, perfect man. And so because Jesus was the perfect man, my dad was told that Jesus was exactly six foot tall. Not a, not a millimeter more, not a millimeter less. Six foot tall. It sounds silly, but that kind of conforms with our idea of what perfection is. Features. Verse 2 Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Completely undesirable. No winning smile or charm to draw us to him. Despised and rejected, 
hated by the political authorities, hated by the religious authorities. If you ever you've read through the Gospels, if you don't get long into the life of Jesus before you see the knives being sharpened for him. But it's not just those who are at the top who are after him. Jesus' words and his actions, his teaching, upset all groups of people. Completely non-discriminatory in that sense. Yes, crowds followed him. Yes, they wanted to hear him and see the miracles. But their allegiance to him was complicated. See, Jesus didn't do everything that they wanted him to. Give us bread. Feed us. Get rid of our oppressors. And he's like, no, 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 Mike, no, Mike, I'm, I'm here for something else. Let's not deny that the crowds called out, crucify him. Not simply the religious leaders, not simply the political leaders. The crowds called out, crucify him. As Jesus hung on the cross, he was mocked. People looked at him at the end of his life, and it's almost like all the stuff that went before, yeah, 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 but look at him now, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're saying, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, what a loser. What a loser Jesus is. And I look at that, and I think about that, and I said, well, that's not me. If that was me, I would have been there crying. Would I? Would I? See, Isaiah in this prophecy wants to say, hang on a second. Isaiah, he says there, end of verse 3, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Isaiah says, if, you know, this is us. See, I don't like the idea, but deep down I realized that if I was there, I, I would have been no different from the crowds. I know that in my own human nature, I'd have rejected him. I would have called out to him. I can't honestly say I would be better than anyone else who was there. We despised him. We were appalled at him. We rejected him. We were blinded by our own sin. We were unable to see who Jesus really is. But to understand who this servant is, it's not enough for us to know that he was disfigured. It's not enough for us to know that he was despised. We need to know why. And we need to realize, and this gets really personal for us, that he was disfigured and despised for us. Disfigured for us, and yet we despised him. So secondly then, this servant is our substitute, our sinless substitute. It really is a struggle to fit in here the depths of what's going on about us. What it says about Jesus, but what it says about us and our relationship with God. You see, if you haven't felt it already, this is very personal. This is uncomfortable to read. The verses here are very graphic about what happens to the servant very uncomfortable to, to think about this. Look, just listen to these descriptions if you want to look down and follow with me. Verse 4, it says, He took up, surely he took up our pain and suffering. It says he's punished, stricken, and afflicted. Verse 5, he's pierced, he's crushed. Again, it says he's punished. The second time he says that, it says he's wounded. 
verse 7, it says he's oppressed, afflicted, led like a lamb to the slaughter. Verse 8 says he was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living. And for the third time, we were told he is punished. This physical suffering, this is mental anguish, mental torment that's being described in detail. It's a few years ago now, but maybe some of you have seen the Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ. It's a big, big fuss made about it when that film came out. If you have seen it, you'll know it's, it's not an easy watch. It's gruesome, it's bloody, it's horrific. Portrays very well the violence of the crucifixion. But what, it, what that film struggles to do, what it's incapable really of doing, is explaining why all of this happened. Jesus endures the agony. He endures this big physical anguish. He endures... But beyond that, the kind of the, the, the spiritual anguish between him and his father, and he endures all of this because of us. Verse 4 and verse 5 make it really clear. It's not that he is pained, but he experiences our pain. It's not just suffering, but it's suffering for us. And yes, it talks about our transgressions, our iniquities, all that went Jesus goes through is related to our sin and the effects of our sin. We're good at saying Jesus died for us. Things that we say, it's, it's common language. Jesus died for me. It's in our songs, a lot of them. You know, he, he died for us. But what does that mean, he died for us? What does that mean to say Jesus died for me? Think of Chris and Anya earlier. I mean, it was funny. It's funny, but the reality behind that is serious. The Bible is really clear that we, in talking about our transgressions and our iniquities, and these are kind of words we don't use very often. They're religious words, but they're words to talk about the fact that we have broken God's law, God's good law that was given to us to bless us, to show us a right and a flourishing way to live. And yet we rejected that. We pushed God away. And as Anya said, the God of justice could not simply turn the blind eye to that because that would mean that God would be unjust. It would mean that God turns a blind eye to things that are wrong. But God can't do that. And yet in the face of that, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Talking about things which are hard for us to understand. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. He takes our punishment. What we should have received, he willingly took. Jesus takes the full blow, the full force of God's righteous anger against sin. 
He takes the punishment because of us, because we are all lawbreakers. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. It's not that simply that we can say, well, I was led astray. There's a bad influence upon me. No, no, there's something deeper here. It's in us. It's deep in us. It's an individual guilt. We can't blame the crowds. We can't say we just followed them. Saints, personal guilt, individually deserving God's punishment because we transgress, because we willingly sin. You know deep down your own heart when you do something and you know it's wrong and you know the reasons why. Jesus died for us, willful sinners. Jesus, the only one qualified to take our place, the only man who was ever sinless without transgression, without iniquity. Verse 9 says, he tells us, tells us he did no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. There were no sinful outward actions, no inner, hidden inner thoughts. His hands, his heart was pure. And there is a swap. The sinless substitute takes our place and receives our punishment. But where does that leave Jesus and what does that mean for us? Lastly then, the servant is victorious through suffering. Here's something else that we tend to assume but always needs to be said out loud. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. Jesus really did die. His death on the cross in first century Palestine was shocking and horrific as prophesied in these words. Jesus died a violent, horrible death. Physically, the reason for his death was because of corruption. He was a threat to the religious authorities. He was a threat to the political authorities. And yet, these were the tools used by an almighty God. And Jesus went through this plan because of love, love for his Father, and yes, love for us. Jesus went through all of this so that we would have the same relationship that he had with his Father, that same relationship of joy, of love, of peace, real peace, not a temporary ceasefire, but everlasting joy, everlasting joy that can only come about because sin has been dealt with. And the amazing news of the cross is that it's not just the sins that we can remember, but it's past sin, it's our present sin, it's our future sin, all dealt with at the cross. But Jesus wasn't left on the cross or in the tomb. His suffering is not the end of the story. We do not worship a tragic Jesus. We do not worship a miscarriage of justice. We worship a risen Savior, a living, breathing Jesus, a servant who is victorious because of his suffering. Jesus victorious through his suffering. Look at verse 11. After he has suffered, or it could be translated, because of his suffering, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And then verse 12, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions. 
death was not the end for Jesus. And his resurrection, his real resurrection, his physical bodily resurrection gives us certainty that we too will rise again after our death. But what does it mean to us? What does it mean to us who see a cross and see it as the symbol of Christianity? Do you think of these words? What do you make of them? It's heavy going. It's a lot to take in. But it's never meant to be simply information for our heads. Yes, this is Christian teaching. It's properly, it's, it's doctrine. But it doesn't end there. This is meant to lead us to worship God, to praise him. It goes from doctrine to doxology, which means praise and giving glory to God. If you love Jesus, this is the grounds of your love for him. This is why we praise him. This is why we can gather together and sing to him because of what happened here. This wonderful plan, this plan of, of power through weakness. This demonstration of wisdom, which is the only way that God can show that he is just and will not ignore sin, and yet show mercy. So we praise him. We can praise him because we see a victory over death. We see a victory over the causes of death. And I hope then that our hearts should be filled with gratitude, of thankfulness. We can thank God for his grace and mercy. We thank God because Jesus took a punishment that we deserved and gave us life. And he did that not because we asked him, not because we deserved it, not because we were good, but because he loves us. Verse 11 says, By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will bear their inequities. Actually, a different way of translating or thinking that might be to say, by his knowledge, but by knowing him, my righteous servant will justify many. Do you know him? Do you know him? Not just a head knowledge that you can say, I know what the cross is and I know what it stands for. Not a head knowledge that says, yes, Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about Jesus' death. No, but a knowledge that says, that reads these words and you know your heart is filled with thankfulness. Your heart is filled with, with wonder at how this happened. Your heart is filled with this sense of, I deserved this, and yet Jesus took it from me. Do you know that? Do you know this, Jesus? If you want to, if you want to, come and have a chat with me at the end of the service. Why is the cross the symbol of our faith? Because there we see the depths of our sin and the height of God's love. I'm just going to ask for us to be quiet for a moment. And maybe you just want to ponder over that. Maybe you just want to think through that. And I will lead us in a prayer. Lord Jesus, we read these words 
and you know, maybe all sorts of emotions flood into our hearts. We ask that you would show us again, you would move our hearts to see the depth of our sin, the reality of our sinfulness, the reality of what it would take to deal with that. Give us thankful hearts as we remember what you went through, not simply physically, but that anguish of separation from your Father. Give us hearts that are filled with thankfulness for you. Give us hearts that want to worship you, that want to recognize your glorious plan. Thank you that you have died to rescue us, to bring us peace. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would give us joyful hearts, that we would recognize that you had to go through this in order to, to win not only um, salvation, but like a victory. And thank you that because we can be united with you, that your victory over sin and death becomes our victory too. Change us once more, we pray. Give us repentance. Give us gratitude. And give us joy. We ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.